Greetings to the 12 tribes scattered abroad and Shabbat Shalom, everybody. I want to thank our supporters each and every week for your stewardship and tithes in the direction of Torah to the tribes. Without you, none of this would be possible. So blessings and thank you all. And remember, if you like the video, please hit the like button. And also you can click the bell for notifications and get notifications when we upload or do a live broadcast. So spread the good news of the Malkitzedic message. And remember, you've still got time to sign up to Shavuot, the festival coming up here in the next week. So today I get to be blessed to share a message in response to a video that's entitled The Book of the Covenant versus The Book of the Law 119. So this is fun because for me this is a great educational purpose of the Malkitzedic. Now again, today's teaching is another opportunity for us all to learn together and look at the sticking points because there are sometimes sticking points for people on the Malkitzedic message. Now, this isn't a rebuttal against a person or a ministry, but an opportunity to view the problem passages that many people get stuck upon throughout the Word, and we're going to deal with those problem passages in the Word. Now, obviously, we're called Torah to the tribes. So to charge us with abolishing the Torah is somewhat short-sighted, isn't it? It's the name of this ministry. Surely there's got to be a little bit more to the story. Better it would be to ponder whether in our commitment to Yahusha and his commandments, he's shown us the right administration of Torah, which is drastically different than Judaism's approach. And before we get into today's teaching, I want to give us the big picture, the big picture. You see, when many of us were in the traditional church, we initially viewed Scripture and our application of it through the lens of the church and church history. Until the Holy Spirit, the Ruach HaKodesh, got a hold of us and started to move in us and to show us a change, an awakening. Now, likewise, many of us may have come to view the Torah initially through the lens of the Hebrew roots or messianic movement. And there's nothing wrong with that. Praise Yahuwah that he actually started to move in us and we started to see the validity of the Torah. But we've got to be honest with ourselves and we have to admit that with that we also had a tendency to view Scripture through the lens of Messianic Judaism and the lens of the Hebrew roots, and therefore our application of Torah was skewed through Judaism's lens. Now understand this, 
The Messianic movement was birthed in the 60s out of so-called Jews coming to Jesus. Jews for Jesus. Jews who were initially vexed by traditional Judaism. Jews that were rejected, outcasts, and hated by traditional Judaisms. Jews who wanted to outdo the Jews. And how can you outdo the Jews? By outward signs of observance, tradition, and recognition. And that's what drove the doctrine. We have to admit that. That's the history. Then the 19s, the 90s came. And then the 2000s came. And more and more Gentiles, if you will, we came to know the Gentiles were actually Ephraim scattered in the nations, came to know the Messiah and his Torah. And they started to come into what was called the Messianic and Hebrew Roots Movement. But this was a big problem. For Jews that were trying to outdo the Jews, what are they going to do with all these Gentiles coming in? So then there was a split. It was a split in the Messianic movement between the one house, Jews and Jews, and those that were saying it's not just for the Jews, but all 12 tribes and the sojourners. So you had a split in the 2000s between the one house movement and the two house movement. But the same vein still drove the doctrine to outdo the Jews with outward signs of observance and Jewish traditions and a Jewish interpretation of what Torah is. And that interpretation is not founded in Yahusha. It's founded in the tradition of the elders. And that's what many of us have inherited. And it actually played out into our everyday lives. Now, Torah to the tribes has questioned this approach. We've questioned this approach. And we've been led through the Holy Spirit, through the Ruach HaKodesh, to view the Torah distinctly differently from both Judaism's approach and the traditional antinomian church approach. It's not a different Torah, and it's not a doing away with Torah, but it's a different, and this is what I hope to communicate today, a different administration of Torah. Thus, if you have a different administration, you have a different application. And that affects our lives together. And understand, in all due respect, I know the traditional church anti-law polemic. And I know the traditional Messianic Jewish Torah polemic. I immerse myself in both of them and taught them both for years. All I'm asking, all I'm asking today is that we be willing to see and view Torah in the context of Yahusha alone for the first time in over 2,000 years. Not the church's view and not the Jewish view. Not Judaism's view, Messianic, Hebrew roots or otherwise, but Yahusha alone. 
This was Paul's polemic, and this is my polemic. That's all I'm asking. I want to help us all. I truly do. I want to help us take our faith and our observance to the next level. And to do that, we must be under the right administration. So, without further ado, let's get into this week's teaching, the Book of the Covenant versus the Book of the Law, 119. Now, this was posted on Facebook by somebody, and I want to read it because I think it's brilliant. This individual said, I'm really excited about this, speaking of today's teaching. Two strong ministries in this movement, both of which have heavily influenced me during my awakening to the truth. I hope that these rebuttals that I'm sure may go back and forth can be done in love and gentleness. But this is a topic that needs to be addressed and the true theology come to light in this matter. Again, I highly respect both of these ministries. And I've grown to love them completely and consider the primary speakers for both these ministries my elders. But what I don't want to see, and I love this, is an unstoppable force meet an immovable object. Much love and respect again to both ministries. I know each is faithfully following truth to the measure of understanding given to them. Shalom. That's maturity, and I appreciate that. Thank you so much. So in light of that, I'm going to chill as I proceed forward with good public spiritedness. Amen? So we'll dig in, and this is really from about a 25-minute video entitled The Book of the Covenant versus The Book of the Law, and they start out in the video with this, quote, The validity of God's law is being attacked. Now, this, of course, is an emotional call, call to arms, right? The validity of God's law is being attacked. Of course, this is an emotional call to arms. God's law is being attacked. Let's get the dirty bandits. I mean, who wants to get into the fight like that? I certainly do. But hang on a minute. It's against me and this ministry, you know. No, no. Hang on. Chill. Settle down, Nelly. This is not what we're saying here at all. 1 Timothy 3.16 says thus, All scripture is given by inspiration of Elohim, and it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. And 2 Corinthians 8.13, it is written, And not as Moses, which put a veil over his face, that the children of Israel could not steadfastly look to the end of that which is abolished. Now, the word there, abolished, in the Hebrew is betel. It means to stop, to cease, or to hinder. 
Now, we have to be cautious of the knee-jerk reaction. Abolished! 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 It's a call to arms! No. What does this word really mean, and what does this word not mean? The Greek word for abolished is kartesio. Kartesio. Okay? Now, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 15... How's the audio? Just a sidetrack here. Are we clipping in and out? We have had some audio issues. If we do continue to clip in and out, then give me a sign. We may have to adjust the audio. Should we do that now or should we proceed? Okay, let me know if we keep clipping and we'll have to, we'll have to take a break. Ephesians 2.15, it says thus. Having abolished, here's our Greek word here, Katagio or katergio, and the Hebrew word betel, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of twain one new man, so making peace. Now, no, if we look at that verse in Ephesians 2.15, it's only the law, the Torah, of commandments contained in ordinances that come under what's called the abolishment clause, isn't it? It's not the Torah, the law contained in covenant that comes under the abolishment clause. And this all has to do with Yahusha and something to do with his death that then puts the enmity clause to bed or rest. Finally, to ignore this is to ignore the very work of Messiah, which, of course, if we follow a Jewish or Judaic approach to Torah, you are going to inherit the ignorance of Messiah because they reject him, right? So by default, it's going to come into your observance. Torah to the tribes is questioning that because Messiah Yahusha is our all in all and drives our very, very doctrine forward because there is the liberty that comes in Messiah, not a liberty to lawlessness, but the liberty to live out Torah in a holy, balanced, righteous way. So if we look at this, the validity of Yahuwah's law is not being attacked. On the contrary, Torah to the tribes is upholding the law, the Torah, under the banner of Messiah in its proper administration. And what is the administration called in the New Testament? It's called a ministration of the Ruach. So Torah to the tribes' approach to Torah is the proper, I believe, ministration and it's a ministration of the ruach the spirit and that's the whole premise whereas the synagogue of satan or i'm not saying that everybody that is questioning the malkitzedic is of the synagogue of satan no but we have to be we have to admit that the messianic and hebrew roots movement is heavily influenced by the synagogue of Satan and has been heavily infiltrated by the doctrines and dogma 
of the synagogue of Satan, those who deny Messiah, who say they are Jews, but do not have the Spirit. So even if there are good people that are born again in that movement, you have to, in all honesty, I, I, I was in there heavily for over 10 years. There is a huge doctrinal influence by the synagogue of Satan that drives the whole polemic. I thankfully have been able to come out of that and have a big perspective now of seeing the church and its antinomian doctrine and seeing the Messianic Hebrew Roots movement with its synagogue of Satan heavily influenced doctrine and be able to go, hang on a minute, there has to be a narrow way through this. We have to be led through administration of the Ruach. That's what I want to communicate. Second Corinthians 3, 7, it is written. But if the ministration of death written and engraven in stones. Now, what is this talking about? This is talking about, of course, Deuteronomy 27 and Ezekiel 20, verse 25. If the ministration of death written and engraven in stones was glorious so that the children of Israel could not steadfastly behold the face of Moshe for the glory of his countenance. That's the second set of tablets we're referring to here. Which glory was to be done away with. Now, later I'll address this. But this is talking about what? Deuteronomy 27, Ezekiel 20, verse 25 the second set of tablets, and it's talking about of its glory which will be done away. Now, the Messianic and Hebrew Roots movement, how they would deal with these done away with law verses is say, it's talking about the oral law. But it's not. Is this talking about the oral law in the context of done away with, or is it talking about something was added later called the book of the law, which was a ministration of death. Meaning, it had to be imposed upon a people, otherwise Yahweh would have slaughtered them all for the sin of the golden calf. So to skew this and say, oh, this is really those hard laws in the New Testament are talking about the oral law, isn't so. Bear with me, everybody online. We're going to do an audio clip test and we will be back momentarily. Right, let's see if that does us any better. Technology. Technology. Let me know if we still clip and we'll have to uh, keep adjusting it. We may need a little soldering iron or something. We're talking about the ministration of death. Everybody, you know, if I have to move because we have to do a, um, an audio clip test, just go and get a cup of coffee, you know, it's okay. We're all relaxed.
to look at the context of 2 Corinthians 3, 7 and say there's a polemic of the written law versus the oral law is disingenuous. It's non-existent except in the minds of the adherents of a Judaic tradition because this context is still dealing with the written word of Yahuwah. So let us now continue on. 2 Timothy 1 verse 10. But it is now made manifest by the appearing of our Savior, Yahusha Messiah, who hath abolished. What has he abolished? He has abolished death and hath brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Here's our Greek word for abolished. Kartagio, our Hebrew word, Betel, and again, the abolishment clause. Now, abolished death, 2 Timothy 1.10, does it mean then that you and I will not die? Nobody's ever going to die now because death has been abolished. Is that what it means? No, it doesn't. The key to understanding the abolishment clause is its administration which is what I really want us to grasp today because this is almost the key that unlocks your whole Torah worldview is administration. Ministration as it's spoken of in the Brit Hadashah New Testament. This is talking about a administration or ministration of death. How do we reconcile? This is the question. How do we reconcile the abolishment of the law of commandments contained in ordinances and all scripture being for doctrine and instruction. How do we reconcile the two? We have to understand it in its proper biblical usage. What abolish means and what abolish does not mean because the video that I'm addressing today is just taking sound bites out of our teachings and not investigating any further, drawing wrong conclusions based upon a faulty premise. So let's quickly take a little sidetrack here and define abolish or obsolete, or done away with, which is often a charge that is levied against yours truly and Torah to the tribes. What does abolished mean? Let's find out. Not according to me, but according to the word of Yahuwah. Because in our modern American or English language, that doesn't matter. We want to find out what does this mean in the Bible, whether it's the Greek word or the Hebrew word that is translated into our modern English word abolished. Let's go to the book of Ezra, chapter 6, verse 8, and we'll find our root. Moreover, I make, I make a decree what ye shall do to these elders of the Jews for the building of this house of Elohim. Context is everything. What are we talking about? The context of abolished is going to have something to do, I'm giving you a clue, with the building up of the house of Elohim. Saints, what are you? 
You are the living stones, the lively stones, as Peter says, of the temple of Yahuwah in a new ministration. So this is going to affect your life. Torah should affect your life. It should affect your family. It should affect your marriage. It should affect your children. And it shouldn't be a heavy religious load where you feel like you have to dress up like a Jew and, and put on all of that garb. There's nothing wrong with you to do that. But realize that that is coming from an outward observance. I think we're going to switch to a microphone. Let's see if we have some sound with that. Hey, we'll go back to the old school. All right. I'm going to hold this bad boy for the rest of the teaching. Have we got sound? No clipping. Okay. Moreover, Ezra 6, 8, I make, a, I make a decree. What ye shall do to these elders of the Jews for the building of this house of Elohim, that of the king's goods, even of the tribute beyond the river, expenses be given with all diligence unto these men, that they be not abolished or hindered. They be not abolished or hindered. This is most important. Darius here, in the context, how are we doing for sound now? Good. We got it adjusted to the right levels. We're not like buzzing people's eardrums out there, are we? Like, okay. You can always, um, yeah, put in the chat if, if we're blowing your head off. So we don't want to do that. I feel like singing a song with this up here. All right, let's get back. So what happens here is Darius makes a decree not to hinder or abolish. My kids are laughing at me. You really don't want me to start singing. I could be like a lounge, cheesy lounge act here if you're not careful. I've got the lights. I've got the camera. I've got the action. Darius, in all seriousness, makes a decree not to hinder or abolish the work of the men who are rebuilding the temple. In all seriousness here, we're going to get back into the context of abolish. So I appreciate your patience with us, with our technology, brand new building, brand new stuff. There's a little bit of a learning curve. So bear with us. We're trying to make things better and better all the time. But that doesn't mean we don't have hiccups along the way. So the context of abolished here is based upon not hindering the new building up of a temple that was previously destroyed. This is huge. The context of abolished and the abolishment clause in the New Testament is the book of the law is not to hinder, listen, it's not to hinder the building up of you. The one new man, the lively stones. The book of the law is not to hinder up the building up of the one new man, the lively stones, into the commonwealth of Israel as a holy nation and a kingdom of priests. 
think about it. This is Paul's polemic. This is Torah to the tribes polemic when it comes to the book of the law and the book of the covenant polemic. The book of the law is no longer a hindrance to the building up of the new temple man which was previously destroyed. Which was previously destroyed. Look at Ezra chapter 4 verse 21. Give ye now commandment to cause these men to cease, and that this city not be builded, until another commandment shall be given from me. So again, the context is the building up of a new temple and commandments being given and commandments ceasing. That's the context. Ezra chapter 5 verse 5. The context again is one that cannot cause the building up of the new man to cease because it's by the very hand of Yahweh. Galatians 3.12 And the law is not of faith, but the man that doeth them shall live in them. So Exodus 19.8 informs us that the book of the covenant is of faith, doesn't it? All that Yahweh has said, we shall do. That's faith, isn't it? That's faith in action. But Galatians tells us in 3.12 that the law is not of faith. So can this be talking about the book of the covenant? Because the book of the covenant was acted upon in faith. All that Yahweh has said, we shall do. That is great faith. But Galatians must be then talking about a different administration of law that was not of faith, which was imposed, and that would be later. Galatians 3.12 and Exodus 19.8 are talking about two distinct applications of law, Torah. Whereas the book of the law was not of faith. It was imposed upon them when? Until the time of reformation when Yahusha, our Messiah, would bring in a new administration of it. Now the traditional church says that he did away with it. Heavens forbid. But he definitely did make a new administration of it, which, of course, traditional Judaism would deny, which we would inherit in the Messianic and Hebrew Roots movement, which is the sticking point for many of you out there in the Malkit Zedek. It's inherited behavior, and it's an inherited belief that drives the whole religious vein throughout the theology. This is what we're talking about. So, if we look further, 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 further forward in the book of Hebrews, in the ninth chapter and the tenth verse, we'll find that the book of the law was not of faith, but was, of course, imposed upon them until the time of Reformation. So now we found out what abolished does mean. Let's find out what abolished does not mean. The Hebrew word here, what we're going to discover, the Hebrew word macha, 
and the Greek word apolumi means destroyed. Hebrews 9 verse 16. For where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is in force after men are dead. Otherwise it is of no strength at all while the testator liveth. So we're talking about a will, a death that is required in order to secure what Yahuwah promised to do. Okay? So let me give you like a, a big, big picture. If I made a will four years ago, back in 2015, and then I decided, you know what, I'm going to make a new will here in 2019. Could I bring some things forward from the 2015 will and include them in the 2019 will? Could I do that? And once I had ratified the 2019 will, could it run concurrently with the 2015 will? No. The new ratification will always take precedence over the old. But that does not mean that everything in the old is abolished. I have the right to bring forward into the new will whatever I want. But once that new will is ratified, the old one is abolished. This is a proper administration of law. And that is what we must understand to truly come into our faith in Torah, in Yahushua, in the full power of it. If I made a will in 2015 and then made a new will in 2019, the will is new. It's not renewed. Can we agree on that? It is brand new. You cannot renew it. It is a new will. You only have one will in administration at a time. Can we agree upon that? Okay. But the 2019 will being signed and sealed by all parties, it's the will that is now in play or better in administration. And by its current administration, bear with me, and by its current administration, it abolishes the administration of the 2015 will and all its legal bindings, including penalties. Correct? Now, penalties. But there's going to be blessings. You mean blessings and cursings would be abolished from the 2015 will. Correct? Yes, all of it. That does not mean, big picture, that does not mean that everything written in 2015, in the will of 2015, will be destroyed and of no use to you. Thus, the balance between the abolishment clause and all scripture being for reproof and doctrine. But that does not mean that it is in administration. Can you learn 
from the 2015 will. And if you learn from it and you bring what is in its proper administration forward, will your living today in the 2019 will be a better administration and a blessing to your seed? Yes, because you will have put in more clauses that bring blessing and you would have taken out the clauses of cursing as you have grown in the administration. This is the Malkitzedic anointing. This is what Judaism rejects because they are working in administration, as Paul says, of death. But we have to work in administration of the Ruach, the Spirit. I hope that kind of in our simple language of modern legal wills that we all understand, this is what the writer of Hebrews is trying to communicate 2,000 years ago. I'm trying to bring it forward for us today. Meaning this, in short summation, you cannot have two different laws and blood covenants running simultaneously any more than you can have two wills running simultaneously any more than you can have two presidencies under one administration. Thank goodness we haven't got Obama and Trump in the White House together. Mind you, that would be an ultimate UFC I would love to watch. Okay. You can't have two different administrations running at the same time. Book of the Law and Book of the Covenant cannot run at the same time. One is administered by Levi, the lesser, and one is the better administration of the resurrected Yahusha, who sits at the right hand of the Father. Levi hasn't been in practice for over 2,000 years. Can we be clear on that? <clears throat> So, we're talking about administration. Darius made a command, a decree concerning the administration of the building of the new temple. And Yahusha has put you under his ministration by the Ruach in application to Torah and the covenant. So then, in the video, they say, the next statement they say, a fringe segment of the Messianic movement. Well, if they mean a remnant of the House of Israel scattered abroad, guilty as charged. But actually, we are not a fringe segment of the Messianic movement because we are not actually influenced by the doctrine and observance and traditions of the Messianic movement, which is thus influenced heavily by the synagogue of Satan. I was once, but I am no more. And I'm just trying to pave the way so that many of you don't have to go down the thorny thicket path that I had to go down. If I can save one person, one family from having to go through what we went through, then it was all worth it. It's a heavy yoke that we're not supposed to carry. So they go on in the video saying, of course, that this is some kind of new revelation. It ain't new, like I said last week. It's 3,400 years old. It was confirmed later in 60 of the Common Era by the writings. Um, excuse me, I said it. 3,400 years old. It was confirmed 
again 2,000 years ago in 60 of the Common Era by the writings of Galatians, Ephesians, Romans, Hebrews, and Colossians, which we've done extensive teachings on. And then in the video, they go on to say this, quote, they received God's law at Mount Sinai. Well, actually, the Book of the Covenant was actually received at Mount Sinai, Exodus 19. The Book of the Law was not received at Mount Sinai in Exodus 19 through Exodus 24, verse 11. We can see that. Very clearly, it was not the book of the law or God's law, as they say in its entirety, but specifically the book of the covenant, Exodus 19, verse 6, that was received. Then they go on to say this. Now listen. The book of the covenant, Exodus 20 through 24, verse 8, begins with the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. And it ends in Exodus 24, verse 8. And the book of the law is from Exodus 24, verse 9, and extends through Deuteronomy 34. This is absolutely false. And if you have a false premise, you're going to draw a false conclusion. The book of the covenant does not begin in Exodus 20, and it does not extend through Exodus 24, verse 8. This is simply not true. And the book of the law does not begin in Exodus 24, verse 9, and extend through Deuteronomy 34. So the whole premise for this video is flawed. They don't even understand where the book of the covenant begins, its parameters, where it ends, where the book of the law starts, where it ends, this is of great concern. Again, it's very easy to rush headlong into something and not have the full understanding of what we're even talking about. Then they switch it up and say this. Some proponents, quote, some proponents say it actually begins in Genesis 1 and extends through Exodus 24 verse 8. This is still wrong. How can you make an argument for your beliefs against another belief if you don't even know what the foundation of the other belief is? This should cause us all to take pause. Okay? Then they go on to say in the video this, quote, It was then taught that the book of the law was added to the book of the covenant as some kind of punishment for the golden calf. This is simply impossible and simply untrue. They don't actually comprehend the teaching coming out of Torah to the tribes because you cannot add to a broken covenant. Galatians chapter 3 verse 15. It would be impossible to add the book of the law to the book of the covenant. You can't do that. It would be like adding a will to a will. You can't have two concurrent administrations. So again, we have a false premise is going to draw a false conclusion. Then they go on to say this in the video. Quote, the Levitical priestly system was not part of God's original plan. Well, they actually got that right. 
So that's good. Let's see. We've got Kingdom of Priests, Exodus 19.6, right? We've got Levi paid tithe to Abraham, Hebrews 7.9. Now that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away, Hebrews 8 verse 13. So when they say in the video the Levitical priestly system was not part of God's original plan, they acknowledge truth. I love it when that happens because... We are sometimes dealing with individuals that seriously have just inherited a lot of Jewish dogma, but still may be tr truly, truly seeking for truth and veiled. And that's okay. I was veiled in the Messianic movement for over a decade. And then a decade before that in the church. But Yahweh was still working in my life as he was working in your lives to draw us unto him. So we, we, we cannot despise our humble beginnings and we cannot despise other people unless they are actually, you know, out there doing wicked things, okay? Then we see there's other scriptures that, again, validate the reality that the Levitical priesthood was not Yahweh's original plan. Genesis 49.10, we spoke about that a lot last week, Exodus 32. Numbers 3.12, Numbers 8.15 through 17, Joshua 5.5, 5, Hebrews 7 and 11 and 12. All of these scriptures evidence that. You can look at those in, the, in your own time. So as you proceed through the video, they actually admit problem passages. But like I said earlier, they attribute those problem passages to the oral law versus the written law. And it's really, I've come to know this from experience, it's the messianic sidestep. It's the messianic sidestep which was learned from the church sidestep, okay? Which was all the church sidestep was, well, these problem passages about the law is the church sidestep. The law is done away with in its entirety. The messianic sidestep of the problem passages about the law is, well, this is a polemic of the oral law versus the written law. But it never states that in the Bible. So both of the adherents to that doctrine, whether it's the church doctrine of antinomianism or the Hebrew roots messianic adherence to the oral law, written law polemic, neither of those, either side of the aisle, are actually in the Bible. These are just the doctrines and traditions of their distinctive denominations, if you will. So... Both have no basis in Scripture, only in the minds of their devotees, whether on this side of the aisle or that side of the aisle. Whereas, the book of the law is specifically mentioned by name in the midst, in the very midst of the law, no law polemic. Galatians 3.10, Galatians 4.21, Ephesians 2.12. How can one justify ignoring such proof texts and then latch on to either of the narrative on this side of the aisle or the narrative on that side of the aisle which have no scriptural support without further investigating this book of the law 
reality that actually is mentioned within the very midst of the law, no law verses. Surely that would bear some weighing out. And we have done that and come to the belief of what we teach here at the ministry, which I hope is a help to people to navigate Torah and Yahusha in its full spirit-filled administration. So now we're going to come to Yom Kippur, because they go on to say in the video that Tzitzit and Yom Kippur are in the book of the law, and therefore Torah to the tribes is teaching that they are abolished. And again, look at the abolishment clause. We've already touched on that. What does abolish truly mean? What does it not mean? Because it's very easy to levy that charge. Abolished! And, you know, it's like I said earlier, it's a call to arms. Who doesn't want to get into a fight when you're saying something like that? They've abolished God's law. What do you mean? It's a call to arms. In reality, it's a straw man. It's a straw man. It's thrown around by those who want to write off the Malkitzedic without weighing the weightier matters of the law. It's very easy to throw those terms around, take a little five-minute soundbite of me and say, oh, see, abolished. Come on, we wouldn't be called Torah to the tribes, would we, if we were abolishing the Torah? That makes no sense whatsoever. So, anyway, let's look at Yom Kippur. When was Yom Kippur first instituted? Was it instituted in the Book of the Law, Leviticus 16, or was it instituted first in the Book of the Covenant, Genesis chapter 3, verse 21? Yom Kippur, its foundation is in the Book of the Covenant primary, not Leviticus 16. Yom Kippur is first mentioned in Genesis Bereshit, Genesis chapter 3, verse 21, on the 10th day of Tishri. And we're instructed on how to keep Yom Kippur. Where do we, as believers in Yahusha, in the right administration, where will we find the instructions on how to keep Yom Kippur? The knee-jerk reaction from the Messianic movement and the Hebrew Roots movement to find instructions on Yom Kippur, turn in your Torah to Vaikra 16, Leviticus 16, inherited from traditional Judaism that rejects Yahusha. But we have a greater calling. We have a great Messiah who sits upon the right hand of the Father. And we have been given the instruction of how to celebrate Yom Kippur. It's in the Bible. And it comes to us, of course, from Hebrews chapter 9, specifically verse 8. The Ruach, this signifying that this is all about how we celebrate Yom Kippur. Which administration is unto death and which administration is by the Ruach? The ministration of how you keep Yom Kippur, the ministration of death, is found in Leviticus 16. Correct. But the ministration of the Ruach, how to keep Yom Kippur in Yahushua, is, of course, Leviticus 16. No. Hebrews 9, verse 8. The Ruach, this signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest. Under the ministration of death was the way to keep Yom Kippur manifest. 
He just told you it wasn't manifest. It was not yet made manifest while as the first tabernacle was yet standing. So everything that they were doing in Leviticus 16 under the administration of death, did it truly make manifest what Yom Kippur was all about? No. Which is why Orthodox Judaism today swings chickens around their head to celebrate Yom Kippur because it's a ministration of death and it has not yet been made manifest to them. That's not for you and I. We have something greater which was a figure for the time then present in which we are offered both gifts and sacrifice that could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to conscience, which stood only in meats and drinks and diverse washings. And listen to this. Carnal ordinances imposed on them until the time of reformation. This is specifically talking about the book of the law, which was not agreed to, but imposed upon them after the golden calf breach until the time of reformation. Neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. For if, here's the big if, if the blood of bulls and of goats and of the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifieth to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Mashiach through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot unto Yahuwah purge your conscience from what? Dead works. An administration of death of Torah brings forth dead works. But an administration of life, Torah by the Spirit, brings forth blessings, multiplicity, the Malchizedek anointing of Torah to the final remnant generation. It's the proper administration. That's all I'm trying to teach here because I have seen the burden on families being lawless, enshrined in paganism, heathenism, moral corruption of the pagan church. And I've seen the burden of families that have inherited by default doctrines and the heavy influence of the synagogue of Satan from a Judaic anti-Yahusha background that has infiltrated the Messianic and Hebrew Roots movement. And in our zeal for Torah, we sometimes have taken on things that we should never have taken on in the light of our redemption. We have to now understand that Yahuwah is bringing forth an anointing of Torah and the Malkizedek, his son, to you and me in this generation. Let's, it's the living word and living works, not dead works, okay? Teaching people to observe Yom Kippur according to Leviticus 16 would be what? It would be Torah without the testimony. Of what use? 
would the tree of crucifixion be to you? Surely you have left the tree and returned to the early tent. We're to keep the Torah and the testimony. Isaiah the prophet says unto you in the 8th chapter and the 6th verse, If they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in them, because they are influenced heavily by the synagogue of Satan that's trying to deceive you. I'm not saying that everybody is the synagogue of Satan. But is the Hebrew roots and messianic movement heavily influenced by it? Yes. Yes. I know. I saw it for many, many years. I used to celebrate Hanukkah and Purim with the best of them. So it's time to move forward. Let's talk about seat seat because the charge was levied. Well, seat seat. Well, actually... Tzitzi is the only command leveled against the Malkitzedic priesthood that we actually don't, don't keep. And in the Messianic and Hebrew roots movement, they really hold seat and beards, those two commandments, very dear. Because they are the most outward observance that you can recognize, right? So outward observance to the Jews is a big thing. Right? If you're trying to outdo the Jews, you've got to have longer seat seats and bigger beards. Right? So that's something that, you know, when that charge is levied, well, Torah to the tribes teaches that you don't have to wear seat seat. Guilty as charged. Let me explain why. Galatians 3, verse 14. Now, I've got seat seat at home. And when I was wearing seat seat, let me tell you, you know me, I was zealous. I mean, I wasn't just going to go get some, you know, some little fabric from the fabric store or you go to these messianic Hebrew roots little stools that they put the blankets over on Shabbat and then after Shabbat, boom, they were buying and selling and trading. I mean, no, I wanted the real deal. It had to be from the Murex snail over in Israel. It had to be the real deal. You had to get them imported. I had to tie my own. I mean, nobody else was tying them for me. I mean, they had to be, I mean, I was going to follow it by the letter of, of the law. So, and mine were long. And, and, and they were gorgeous, okay? So this is, I'm not, I'm not saying this because I don't love seat seats. I love seat seats. I mean, I was like well into them. But at some point, I'm like, hang on a minute. The Ruach, the Holy Spirit started to work on me. Because sometimes there can be a lot of pride with outward observance. I mean, I never could grow a really nice meaty beard. Okay, mine was like, if the wind blew, you know, it was gone. Okay, so, but some of you out there, I mean, you've got gorgeous beards. I'll give it to you, all right? Great. But, you know, sometimes it, there can be pride with that. Pride with the seat seats. Pride with the big meaty beards. Okay, because it's a, it's a, it's a very carnal. Let's be real. It's, it's an outward observance. Galatians 3.14. Galatians 3.14. How are we doing on the sound? Are we doing okay, everybody here? Yeah, thumbs up? Okay. You can never tell. Galatians 3.14. That the blessing, the blessing of Abraham. Mm, the blessing of Abraham might come on. We're talking about seat seat. That the blessing of Abraham 
might come on the nations through Messiah Yahusha. We've all read these scriptures. Sometimes we've just got to slow it down. Step back and have some big, big paradigm shifts. Because we can, I'm, I'm, I'm so guilty as charged of all of this. I'm, that's why when I do this teaching today, this isn't against a ministry. This isn't against an individual. I understand. I'm no better, no worse, but I am blessed because I've walked through the fires, the fires of lawlessness in the church. I've got a tape cassette somewhere in my house of when I was at Calvary Chapel, standing before the whole congregation as the pastor, when the pastor was away. And I remember this, standing saying, well, the Ten Commandments, we can't actually keep those today. Praise Yah that now I understand that that was wrong. But that was me as a 20-odd-year-old kid trying to do the best I could. And then I've got CDs of me in the messianic movement with a, a bristly beard blowing in the wind or blowing off in the wind and tripping over seat seats and head coverings teaching, you know, Akare Mot, Yom Kippur and how we're to be doing everything to vex Judaism. I mean, I was that close to going and finding a chicken. Not really, but, you know, I'm sure it wouldn't have been long. Praise Yah that I don't do that anymore. So all that to say this we got to slow down because the biggest things that have changed my life haven't been the minutia of the word but have been big building blocks big paradigm shifts things that you've read and read and read and then one day you come across and you're like oh my goodness it was there all along and it changes your life that the blessing of Abraham might come on the nations through Messiah Yahusha, that we might receive the promise of the Ruach through faith. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He saith not unto seeds as of many, but as of one. And to thy seed, which is Yahusha. We're talking seat seat. We're talking seat seat. That's why I'm reading you this scripture. And you're like, well, how? what has this got to do with seat seat? This is the same Abraham who never wore seat seat. This is the same Abraham who never saw a Levitical priest. This is the same Isaac, the same Jacob, whose name was Israel, who never wore seat seat, to whom the promises were made. Seat seat were instituted because the children of Israel couldn't even keep the fourth commandment. They couldn't even keep the Shabbat. And they went a gathering sticks. Why did they go a gathering sticks on the Sabbath? Why couldn't they even keep the Shabbat? Verse 14 of Galatians tells us, because they hadn't received the promise of the Holy Spirit, had they? 
That is why they couldn't keep the commandments. Now, if you need seat seats to remind you to keep the commandments after the resurrection of Yahusha, then I guess that's up to you. But don't make your opinion my burden, especially when 2 Corinthians 9.8 states, and Yahweh is able, yes, he's able, Yahweh is able to make all, that means all, unmerited favor abound towards you that you always have all sufficiency in all things that they may abound to every good mitzvot. Meaning, with the resurrection of Yahusha and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, Yahuwah will in all sufficiency make all goodness abound to you that you will be able to keep the commandments, which was the purpose of Tzitzit. Selah. Romans 7, 6. We are delivered from the law. This is talking about the book of the law. That being dead wherein we were held, that we should serve in the newness of the spirit. So we should serve Yahuwah, which means keep his commandments through what? The new administration of the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. If you need seat seats to remind you to keep the commandments, then that's between you and the Father. But as for me and my house, I need the Holy Spirit inside of me to convict me to keep the commandments way more than I did Matthew's handmade seat seat. Okay? That never helped me keep any commandments, which is why it failed in the Tanakh, which is why you had Josiah's reforms, because seat seat didn't help. It's only the indwelling of the Ruach HaKodesh, the right administration that will ever help you to keep the commandments. Romans 8.3, for what the book of the law, the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh. So even if you do wear seat seats, it's weak in the flesh, is it not? The spirit is what keeps you in the right working relationship with Yahuwah. So, then they go on to say in the video this, quote, the Bible never makes a clear distinction between the book of the covenant and the book of the law. In fact, the opposite is true. And then they go into what I call, and I said it last week, the Josiah effect, okay? This is the synonym stumble, the synonym stumble. And they go on to say this, quote, why read the book of the law, talking about Josiah in, in um, Second Chronicles 34, they say this. Why read the book of the law, tear your clothes, and then read a completely different book? It just doesn't make any sense. That's what they say. And this is what I say. Yes, it does. It makes perfect sense. He read the book of the law, which was a witness against them for breaking the covenant. He thus tore his clothes in mourning, then went and gathered all the elders together, opened up the ark, and read the book of the covenant to which it pointed. It makes perfect sense. 
This doesn't prove a synonymous relationship any more than disprove it. Hmm. Because one is found outside the other. If you find the book of the law, you're going to find the book of the covenant. And if you find the book of the covenant, you're going to find the book of the law. And if you read the book of the law, you would rip your clothes in mourning because you would realize that you had broken the covenant and the book of the law was a witness against you for breaking it. Then you would assemble all of the elders together, the upper statesmen, and in all Kedushah holiness, you would then read the covenant. It makes perfect sense. Then they go on to say this, quote, the priesthood was given to Aaron and his sons before the golden calf. This is a common stumble. They then read Exodus 28 as a proof text. Exodus 28 is not before the golden calf because, as I've said many times, Torah is not chronological in mitzvot, in commandment, but chronological. The narrative is chronological. There was Abraham, then there was Isaac, and then there was Jacob. But the commandment or the mitzvot giving is not always chronological. It's chronological. Even Rashi, the great Jewish sage, you know, their darling, admits that the Torah is not chronological. This isn't something new. They have known this for thousands and thousands of years. And anyway, Hebrews 7.11, what are you going to do with that? That witnesses to the fact that Torah is not chronological because Hebrews 7.11 testifies to this truth, stating that the book of the law was given under the Levitical priesthood, which was determined by of course, the golden calf breach. Deuteronomy 10 verse 8 tells us this. Let me read Deuteronomy 10 verse 8. Give me a second. Not used to handling a microphone. Let's look at Deuteronomy 10, verse 8. At that time, at what time? After the golden calf breach with the second set of tablets. 10, verse 1, Deuteronomy 10, verse 1. At that time, Yahweh set aside the tribe of Levi. Hebrews 7, 11. If therefore perfection were by the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people receive the law. Well, this can't be talking about the book of the covenant because that was received not under the Levitical priesthood, but under a kingdom of priests. So this cannot be talking about the book of the covenant. If therefore perfection were by the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there for another priest who should arise after the order of, of course, Malkizedek and not be called after the order of Aaron. So, again, Torah is not always chronological. There are examples of achronology 
which of course is with the commandment giving. Here's a perfect example, Exodus 16 verse 33. What do you find in Exodus 16 verse 33? You find the manna and the ark of the testimony. The manna is put into the ark of the testimony in Exodus chapter 16 verse 33. There's a problem. When was the Ark of the Testimony built? Anybody? It wasn't built. It didn't even come into existence until Exodus 25. So how can you put the manna in the Ark of the Testimony back in Exodus chapter 16, verse 33, when it didn't exist? Our chronology. Right? See, people don't take this into account. This is a proof text, and there's many more. This just disproves it in one verse, but another verse that disproves it is a kingdom of priests, Exodus 19.6, versus a kingdom with a priest later at the breach. So again, the difference between our chronology, that's a word for me today, and chronology. Anyway, Exodus 24.12 really does clear it up nicely, and it says thus, and Yahweh said unto Moshe, Come up to me into the mount, and be there, and I will give thee tablets of stone, and a law, and commandments which I have written, that thou mayest teach them. We're dealing here with the argument that Torah is totally chronological, and my premise is that yes, the narrative is chronological, but the commandment giving does not always follow a chronological form. It's called achronological. I actually said it correctly. Okay. Here's a perfect example. Exodus 24:12. I will give thee tables of stone and a law. But Yahweh cannot violate his own word. Yahweh cannot add a law to an already blood-ratified covenant. The book of the covenant was blood-ratified in Exodus 24 in the preceding verses. And the elders of Israel went up to the mountain and they confirmed it with a covenant-confirming meal. But it was blood-ratified with a sprinkling. Then it was confirmed with a blood with a covenant-confirming meal. At that point, the document is sealed. Can you add a law to it? No. So any additional law must be a totally different and distinct law because you cannot add to the covenant. You simply can't. So what is happening here? Yahweh cannot add to an already blood-ratified covenant, Galatians 3.15. This has to be a separate law. What it is, just like the Gospels, it's a telescoping, chronological account of the breach of the covenant because Yahweh is beyond space and time and he was up on the mountain seeing it all. He knew what would play out. This is not a chronological account. Then they go on in the video and they say this. They then build a straw man stating a truth. Quote, listen to this. They say this. All priests are Levites, the tribe of Levi, and not all Levites 
are priests, the sons of Aaron. Is that true? Yes, that's true. But here's the straw man. Because then they construct that, and then they blow it over with, it could perhaps be said that the Levites were ordained for the service after the sin of the golden calf, but that wouldn't have been the official establishment of the Levitical priesthood. If anything, it would only be the establishment of the priestly helpers to the sons of Aaron. And I know it's a lot for you to take in as you're listening to me, but I'll repeat it back to you because this is huge, okay? They build a straw man by stating a truth. Quote, all priests are Levites from the tribe of Levi, but not all Levites are priests from the sons of Aaron. Then they blow it over with, it could perhaps be said, listen, it could perhaps be said that the Levites were ordained for the service after the sin of the golden calf. What did he just say? If Levites ordained for service after the golden calf isn't a Levitical priesthood, then what on earth is it? Right? They just admitted it. Right there and then in the video. They just admitted it. And then they then go on to deny it in the very same sentence. Listen to it. Really. Because then he goes on to say this. It could perhaps be said that the Levites were ordained for the service after the sin of the golden calf. Levites ordained for service is thus a ordination of a Levitical priesthood. Admitted. And then he catches himself and then denies it. But that wouldn't have been the official establishment of the Levitical priesthood. Well, yes, it would. Levites ordained for service after the golden calf breach is an ordination for service, which is an ordination of priesthood, which is thus testified to in Numbers chapter 3, verse 9. You see how they're double-talking you here? Construct the straw man, blow it over, and hope you didn't catch it. Admit something and then deny it in the very same sentence and keep on trucking, and we're all oblivious, but we're not. We have to slow it down. Does that make sense? Am I doing okay? Okay, okay. So they just admitted it and then denied it in the same sentence. You can listen to the video in your own time. It's a double talk. They're now con contradicting their opening statement, and hay is blowing everywhere as they blow over the straw man and just hope that you didn't realize that it was a straw man. But I caught it, okay? Numbers 3 9. You shall give the Levites to Aaron and his sons, and they shall attend to their priesthood. That's pretty clear, wouldn't you say? They're admitting to the helpers of Levi being ordained after the golden calf, but denying it's the priesthood. Numbers 3, 9, and 10 disproves this. It totally disproves it. Then they actually admit in the video to being aware of the chronological 
at chronological truth, but they deny it. This is the best part of the whole video. They admit to the chronological, our chronological truth, but then they deny it with a graph which shows. Now, you've got to wait for this. This is amazing. They deny it with this beautiful graph that comes up on screen of Moses up the mountain from Exodus 20 all the way through to Exodus 32, verse 15. And then they state this, quote, it's clear that the entire section is chronological. The entire section, according to this beautiful graph of Exodus 20, he goes up the mountain. He has a great staycation all the way up the mountain through Exodus 32:15. That's a fabulous staycation. What they've actually done is they've lumped Moses' ten ascents up and down, up and down, up and down the mountain into one long staycation from Exodus 20 all the way through to Exodus 32:15. So think about this. They miss his first four ascents. Think how this would affect your theology. They miss his first four ascents, another four ascents into one, they combine, and then they completely miss another two ascents for a total whopping fail of six ascents missed. Would that affect your theology? It's huge. It's huge. Let me just restate that because this, this is a paradigm shift for many. They lump Moshe's 10 ascents and descents of Mount Sinai into one long staycation from Exodus 20 all the way through to Exodus 32:15. They miss his first four ascents. And then they lump another four ascents into one and then completely miss another two ascents for a total whopping fail of six ascents and descents missed. Is that going to affect your theology? Of course it is. Let's look at Moses' ten ascents and descents of the mountain because it's huge in your understanding of the Malkitzedic. If you miss it, then you're going to miss the whole boat. The first ascent Moses ever makes up the mountain is Exodus 3. The Elohim of the Malkitzedic, he calls Moshe into the priesthood, right? The burning bush. His second ascent, Exodus 19.3, tell the house of the Malkitzedic of Jacob. That's the second ascent is Exodus 19.3. The third ascent, Exodus 19 verse 8, Moshe brings back the words of the book of the covenant to the people. Moshe's fourth ascent, of course, is Exodus 19, verse 20. Go and warn the people there's boundaries. They've got to stay back from the boundaries. Then Moshe's fifth ascent up the mountain is from Exodus 20, verse 21, all the way through to Exodus 23, verse 33. Now, this does, in fact, include the blood ratification of the Book of the Covenant, that means that nothing, that means nothing can be added to this. 
meaning you cannot lump the ascents number 6 through 10 into this because nothing can be added from the fifth ascent onwards because the fifth ascent of the mountain includes the blood ratification of the covenant and you cannot lump covenants or lump ascents together with a Greek chronology. Chronology. <laughs> right? It's a lot to think about. The sixth ascent is, of course, Exodus 24, verse 9. This is the book of the covenant covenant confirming meal the seventh ascent is exodus 24 verse 12 this is where the first set of tablets and the imposed cannot be added to law of commandments along with the tabernacle instructions are given now the eighth ascent is in exodus 32 verse 1 after the sin of the golden calf the ninth ascent of course is in exodus 32 verse 31 moshe the last Malkitzedic priest intercedes for the people. And then the 10th ascent is, of course, the Exodus 34 second set of tablets placed inside the Ark of the what? Ark of the Covenant. And then the Book of the Law is placed outside the Ark in a pocket as a what? as a witness against Israel for breaking the Book of the Covenant, which is housed inside the Ark of the Covenant. It's not called the Ark of the Law, is it? The Ark of the Book of the Law. I mean, so again, if you have Moses on a massive staycation for all those chapters, and you miss six whopping fails of his ascents and descents, it's going to affect your whole timeline, theology, and if you think that's all chronological, there's a huge stumbling block. Where is this inherited from? From the Bible? No, it's inherited from Jewish tradition, which has infiltrated the Messianic movement in the synagogue of Satan. When I was in the midst of it, with all the teachers around, and you've all, you know, everybody's edifying and, and supporting one another to push this doctrine forward, you start questioning it, and then you're going to get... It's no different than when we were in the church. You know how it goes. That's why we get hammered so much. I've had all the invites to, oh, you know, let's just keep pushing this forward, you know. We don't want to... No, no, that Malky Zedek, that's a bit... No, we've got to keep pushing this forward. We've got to outdo the Jews. No. Not when it affects families in a negative way. It's too much of a burden. And there, where's the spirit? Where's the Spirit? People need the Holy Spirit. We need to be doing the healings, the miracles, the signs and the wonders and the balance of the Torah. That's not going to get done under a heavy yoke of carnal ordinances imposed until the time of Reformation. So we conclude with a video. I'm making a short video into a long teaching. But at the end of the video, the gentleman in the video says there's two pillars to the whole of the Malkit Zedek which he believes cannot stand. So the two pillars, let's talk about the two pillars that are brought up in the video. Number one, the Bible never makes a clear distinction between the book of the covenant and the book of the law. The second pillar brought up is this. And if they can demolish these two pillars, then the Malkitzetic message is for naught. So the first one is the Bible never makes a clear distinction between the book of the covenant and the book of the law. The second pillar is the priesthood was given to Aaron and his sons 
before the sin of the golden calf. And then in the video comes a challenge. And the challenge is thus. Demonstrate a distinction. Well, the challenge is actually twofold. The first part is demonstrate a distinction between the book of the covenant and the book of the law. So I like a challenge. So I decided to take that challenge. Here's my challenge answered. First challenge, demonstrate a distinction between the book of the covenant and the book of the law. Go. All right. Write a copy of this law in a book. Why? Why would you do that? Moses already had the book of the covenant. Why would he write a copy of this law in the book? When he already had the book of the covenant back in Exodus 24 verses 7 and 8. Then in Deuteronomy chapter 28 verse 61 we see book of this law. But it is first mentioned by name book of the law in Deuteronomy 29 verse 21. That's my answer to the challenge first. But there's more. This passage destroys their first pillar in one verse. The pillar falls because this text states, according to all the curses in the covenant. What covenant? The Exodus 34 covenant, which wasn't blood ratified, which has got nothing to do with the book of the covenant. According to all the curses of the covenant that are written in this book of the law, this text conclusively shows that we are looking at two distinctly separate books. The problems begin with the fact that there are no curses, plural, mentioned before, during, or in the initiation of the covenant, the book of the covenant in Exodus 19.5, concurrent through its ratification in Exodus 24 verse 11. There are no curses, plural, in the book of the covenant. There is one limited family curse, which is if you don't honor your mother and father. But curses, plural, are only found in the book of the law. There, the first pillar crumbles and fails. The second pillar and challenge is the first pillar, again, sorry, is two-part. The challenge, the second challenge is thus, quote, show a causal relationship between the sin of the golden calf and God's commandments given throughout Exodus through Deuteronomy. Okay, let's take that challenge. I like that. Deuteronomy 31, verse 26. We're going to show that causal relationship. Take this book of the law and put it at the side of the ark of the covenant of Yahweh your Elohim, that it may be there for a witness against you. So the covenant and the promise are not part of the law. The law in the New Testament Paul is speaking of is none other than the book of the law, Galatians 3.10, that is not part of the covenant that cannot be mixed in as covenant. 
And of course, another text that proves this is Galatians 3.19. Wherefore then serveth the law, book of the law mentioned back nine verses earlier, it was added because of transgressions. Well, it was added to transgressions to what? The law? Are we really, I mean, think about it. Are we really to conclude that the law was added to the law because of transgressions to the law? That's idiotic. That makes absolutely no sense. Neither does Torah being added to the Torah. That makes no sense whatsoever. The only way that Galatians 3.19 makes sense in light of Galatians 3.17 and 18 is that the law, which could never have been covenant, was added alongside in a pocket next to the covenant because of transgressions against the covenant with the sin of the golden calf, which is exactly what Deuteronomy 31 verse 26 records. So there we have causal effect for you. Challenge given, challenge accepted and proven. Two pillars down. There you have it. Two pillars down and nothing to stand between us because we've already looked at that second pillar which was of course the priesthood was given to Aaron and his sons before the sin of the golden calf. We've already explained that with the reality of the ten ascents and descents of Moses and the manner put in the Ark of the Testimony in Exodus 16 before the Ark of the Testimony was even built, proving you cannot have a chronological mitzvot necessarily. You have chronological narrative, but our chronology when it comes to mitzvot. And Numbers 3 proves when the Levitical priesthood, as does Hebrews, prove that it was given after the golden calf breach. Two pillars down and nothing standing between you and the Malkitzedic priesthood, but the synagogue of Satan stumbling block. And I'm not saying that everybody's of the synagogue of Satan. I'm just saying that the Hebrew roots and messianic movement is heavily influenced from the synagogue of Satan and heavily infiltrated by the Zionists and the synagogue of Satan. And we have to admit this it's been aligned with the synagogue of Satan since its inception in the 60s because they are vexed by the synagogue of Satan. You've got a case of Jews trying to outdo Jews. But are Ashkenazi Jews? Are they Shemites? Last time I read the Bible, they were sons of Japheth. So again, we have to question we have to question, and again, the one in the video said, question all things. So again, both all question, and let's find the witness and testimony of Yahusha. It's all about Torah, yes, but an administration by the Ruach, not an administration of death. 
It's affected many, many people, and we realize that many in the Messianic and Hebrew Roots movement have aligned themselves more with a shadow of Moses and Judaism than the reality of Messiah and Moses and the Malkit Zedek, which is what Yahushua showed me. It's what Yahushua showed Peter, James, and John through the transfiguration in Luke chapter 9, verse 28. And I'm thankful. I'm thankful that I was able to get the vision and be able to now communicate it. And I do not despise my time in the Hebrew roots and messianic movement. I learned a lot. I grew a lot. And I do not despise my time being a youth pastor and a, a pastor at Calvary Chapel when the pastor was away and teaching, even though I taught error, Yahuwah was patient with me. And now I can continue to grow and grow as we all grow. So we don't look at the author of these articles or videos in a way of conflict, but a way of teaching and edification. Because my hope is that we will all grow together in the love and the Torah of the Malkitzedek, Yahusha, who sits at the right hand of the Father. So I hope this addressed um, some of those questions. It's just fun for me to be able to revisit these things and to be able to see the look on your faces as I teach it. So questions and comments. All right, first question. Why are the instructions about food and Nidar not included in the recorded, proposed, accepted covenant between Yahuwah and Israel? Got to share a microphone, goodness gracious. Well, the instructions between clean and unclean were given to Noah. They were actually formed back in the Book of the Covenant. So yes, it is then brought forward. So the instructions Yahuwah has always designated between Tameh, unclean, and Techor, all the way from the covenant. So that is why we follow the dietary requirements. That inception of that is, of course, Malkit Zedek. And the other question was regarding... Oh, no, the other part of that question was Nidar. Nidar, what, what does the writer of the book of Hebrews say? The marriage bed is undefiled. So did they keep the ceremonial laws in the Malkitzedic priesthood of purity? For sure and for certain. Abstain from your wives for three days. Wash and bathe. Wash your clothes and get ready for the book of the covenant blood ratification. So yes, Nidar and the application of cleanliness, holiness, and sanctification. It's a book of the covenant reality. Should you keep the laws of Nidar with your wife? For sure and for certain. Should you offer the sacrifices associated with it? No. The, no the laws apply under the Malkitzedic priesthood, but the sacrifices of course, are spoken of in the book of Hebrews. So when my wife was pregnant and we had a son, of course, we followed the laws according to the 40-day abstinence. When you have a daughter, of course, 80 days. This is good. This is holy. This is righteous. 
Yes. And now many in the messianic movement that say all law, all law, actually don't even follow the laws of Nidal with their wives. So there's the hypocrisy of it all. Anyway, yeah, its inception is covenant, book of the covenant. But more instruction is given in the book of the law. Another question. Okay, next question. How are we to keep Yom Kippur? How do we keep Yom Kippur? Well, we, we keep Yom Kippur according to the book of Hebrews, not, to, not according to the book of the law. So how does that actually play out in reality? It's a time of coming together in Kedushah, holiness, with your congregational family, or if you're isolated by yourself, it's just a time of introspection, a time of repentance, a time of drawing close to Yahuwah, praying for those, and to going into that time of really seeking Teshuvah, repentance, returning, taking stock, taking inventory of the inside of your cup. I mean, you see this throughout the scripture, but then being thankful of the covering, the atonement, at one with Yahuwah through Yahusha, which you never could have by celebrating Yom Kippur according to Leviticus, which is exactly the point of Hebrews chapter 9. But there's much to be learned together as we come together to celebrate the feasts, which is why we're always saying, come together for the feasts because iron sharpens iron. Question. Okay, Matthew, what is your understanding of Moshiach coming with healing in his wings? That's a brilliant question. Um, of course, it says that Yahushua was one who was born under the... He was born under the law. Did Yahushua keep the book of the law perfectly? Of course he did. If he did not keep the book of the law perfectly, then he could never have been the Malkizedek without sin. And we know that he lived without sin. So he kept the book of the law perfectly. Which means he wore tzitzit, yes. And so when the woman with an issue of blood reached out and touched the hem of his garment, she was touching his tzitzit and she was healed. But traditionally, even Judaism today, when there's a death, the tzitzit are cut off and then handed down as a memorial family of the one that's deceased. When Yahushua died and then resurrected, he now brings in the right administration and the giving of the Holy Spirit then now keeps you in the conviction of keeping the commandments. And like I said, if you need um, seat seats to convict you, then be that as it may. I need the Holy Spirit to convict me. They didn't have that which is why they broke Shabbat. So I don't know if that answered the question, but I hope it does. He was born as one under the law. So, of course, he did wear tzitzit. Okay, this is about a question about the psalm, Psalm 78. Regarding Psalm 78, verse 67, what is the difference between the two tents of Joseph and the tent of David? Psalm, where 
Give me that verse again, Psalm. Let's read it. Psalm 78, verse 67. Moreover, he rejected the tent of Joseph and did not choose the tribe of Ephraim, but chose the tribe of Judah, Mount Zion, which he loved. And he built his sanctuary like the heights, like the earth, which he has established forever. He also chose David his servant and took him from the sheepfolds, following the ewes and the young that he had brought with him. Of course, this is talking about the two-house split, where we have Ephraim, the tents of Joseph. They go up to Tel Dan. They build the golden calves. Yahuwah rejects them. They get scattered into the nations, and Yahuwah chooses Judah, and that's where he's going to build the temple under the administration of David. But now we have what? The Galatians, excuse me, Genesis 49.10, until Shiloh comes, and now all of the blessings of David go down through into the son of David, and the son of David then restores the tents of Joseph and brings in all 12 tribes, full restoration in the Malkitzedic. Hallelujah. Another question. In the 1,000-year reign, will there be animal sacrifices as in sin offering? In the 1,000-year reign, now again, Go back to the beginning of the teaching today. Like I said, in the Hebrew roots and messianic movement, heavily influenced by the synagogue of Satan, Jews for Jesus, and again, trying to outdo the traditional Jews that don't believe in Yahusha. They've inherited many of those um, doctrines and traditions. Traditional Judaism, what does it believe? traditional Judaism. It's all about animal sacrifices, animal sacrifices. Our temple got destroyed in 70 of the common era by the Goyim, the Gentiles. We're going to rebuild the temple. And they, of course, use the book of Ezekiel as a proof text for this third temple. By default, the Messianic and Hebrew Roots movement has inherited that theology Christian Zionism, John Hagee, Hal Lindsey, they've all inherited that theology, believing that the birth of the state of Israel in 1948 is some kind of fulfillment of biblical prophecy, which it's not. It's the fulfillment of Theodore Herzl's Luciferic visions in Basel, Switzerland, but it's got nothing to do with Yahuwah and his fulfillment of prophecy, which is why all of their prophecies fail. They all fail because they're basing it on a false premise. And so the sacrifice equation, now we've dealt extensively with Ezekiel and the revelation of the 13 scrolls, and that this was a, of course, constitutional implications to the house of Israel in exile of promises and blessings which they rejected. So no, in summation, there is not going to be animal sacrifices in the millennial. And if there, well, there may be, excuse me, let me back up. There will not be animal sacrifices that the Malkitzedic, the righteous under the administration of Yahusha, 
will be taking part of. The animal sacrifices will be administered under Lucifer himself, the man of sin, and those that partake will be deceived and will go to hell. It's a most serious, devastating, demonic doctrine that somehow believers in Yahusha are going to be bloodletting animals again. It negates the very premise of the book of Hebrews. And it is dangerous as hell. And it is prevalent in the Hebrew roots, Messianic movement, and Christian Zionism. They're all being influenced by the synagogue of Satan by default. You're in, you in, you're inherit it. Especially if you live in America. It's all like, oh, Zionism, Zionism. Right? Anyway. Okay, last question. Can Matthew cover what dovetailing is? Oh, question, yeah. What is dovetailing? Well, dovetailing is an example, for instance, of where in the book of the covenant you have a foundational commandment given. Example, the commandment of Sabbath is found in the book of the covenant. There are also a lot more commandments and minutia of how to keep Sabbath in the book of the law. So does that dovetail into the book of the covenant? Yes. But the administration of it must be under the Malkizedek pertaining to sacrifice. So Sabbath is a book of the covenant reality. But if you want to find out a whole slew of more things about it, you're going to find it in the book of the law too. Just administer it under the Malkizedek when it is in relation to the sacrifice. Another example I've already mentioned of dovetailing is the laws of Nidar, of separation and Kedushah, holiness. The laws of Nidar, sanctification, are found in the book of the covenant. Brought forward, you will find a lot more information about the laws of Nidar in the book of Leviticus. But you have to administrate it properly. Meaning, yes, I can keep the abstinence laws, but I'm obviously not going to start slaying the animals because that would be under the wrong administration. But what is righteous and holy for me and my wife and our family, that's all laid out, a lot more information. That's dovetailing. An example of where you will not get dovetailing is where you will find a commandment in the book of the law that has no basis whatsoever in the book of the covenant does that mean that that's abolished does that mean that it's not the word of yahuwah no does it mean that you're not going to be edified in reading but you can't administrate it because that would be an administration of death so this is really really a mature word for a mature people in a mature time because we are coming into the maturity of our age and Yahweh wants to prepare his people. And the only way we're getting through the tribulation 
isn't going to be by outward signs of religious observance, but the inward dwelling of the Holy Spirit. And those who have the testimony of Yahusha, and yes, they keep his Torah commands, but you've got to administrate it under him. Otherwise, you're going to end up being heavily influenced by the doctrines of demons. And that is, I hope, bringing clarity to the message. Question. I have two, <clears throat> two questions. Do you want both of them at once, or shall I just do one at a time? From your perspective, in the maturation of your life, do you feel that if you didn't keep some of these commandments, since we have the Messiah with the Holy Spirit, do you feel that they are lost if they don't keep the commandments and still believe in Jesus? Well, I think there's many Jesuses, so that we've got to clear up that, that, that in the first place. You know, there's going to be many and say, oh, oh, I knew you. And he say, get away from me, you workers of lawlessness, A, without nomos Torah. So, you know, I do not believe in this pagan um, 21st and 20th century construct that many are floating. It's just not a reality. It's a figment of imagination with no causal effect, right? That's a good word. I like that. So Yahusha, in his reality, we are saved. We come into the knowledge of him by the inward change, not by keeping of commandments. But the inward change then gives us an outward change. The inward comes first, and then there's an outward expression, right? So, I mean, when I first came to know Yahushua, it wasn't because all of a sudden I got up one day and started keeping commandments. It's because I was changed inside, converted, and then I became convicted. And when I became convicted, I walked out that conviction as best I knew it by trying to then align myself with the Word. But then the doctrines of men came in and said, well, Matthew, you don't actually have to start keeping that. That's Old Testament. And I believed it for a while until the Holy Spirit convicted me further and said, no, you should start to keep my commands. And then, of course, I was influenced by the religion that I came into then, which was the Messianic movement. So, well, you've got to do it all, and we've got to follow the Jews and the way they interpret it. And so I did that. And then the Holy Spirit came and convicted me more and said, no, it must be under the right administration. You're off on your administration of it. I'm glad that you're zealous for the Torah. This is good. But now you must mature in your application of it. And that's how Torah to the tribes teaches. It's not that we teach the Torah is abolished. Heaven forbid. That would make no sense to be called Torah to the tribes. Surely you should pause if you think that and study to show yourself approved as we all have done. And hopefully it will lead to your higher calling in administration. So, Abba, we thank you so much. One more question. Final question. When was the book of the law given? And by who and when and how? The book of the law was given in Exodus 24, verse 12. I read it to you today. It was that added law, right? And then I gave them a law. But that was after the blood ratification of the covenant. This is a telescoping a chronological account. If you believe in the chronology 
and chronology of lo alone, then you miss it. Not to quote the rabbis, but even Rashi, he knew that the Torah was not all chronological. It was given at the golden calf breach. The book of the law. And the book of the law doesn't just go into Deuteronomy. You see it in the book of Joshua. It goes for further forward. So anyway, this is an amazing time, an amazing revelation. Question. Oh, this last question business is keeping going. Um, um, last week you had mentioned something about the Nohatic laws. And knowing that that somewhat fits into the aspect of dead works what do you say to those people who are going to try to put that on us and we know it's dead works how would you handle that yourself again it, you have to understand we live in a day and an age where there's a huge infiltration of the synagogue of Satan, and it's not just into the realms of faith it's into the realms of Hollywood it's into the realms of politics it's into the realms of the new world order the synagogue of Satan finances they are heavily influencing the world that we live in whether it be Bohemian Grove, whether it be all the occult and Luciferic, and they are going to be pushing forward these Noahide laws, and the majority will be deceived because they've already accepted the influence of Zionism. They've already ex accepted the Judaic Christian influence, which is an oxymoron. I can't stand it when people say, oh, this is... Judaic Christianity. Well, Judaism rejects Yahusha. Christianity has propped up this figure of Christ, which is a shadow of the reality of Yahusha. So it's all got so convoluted that people can't even question or even be able to break down. Even today when I was sharing, I mean, I brought out to you how it's very easy to, for people to construct straw men and blow them over and people just accept it when in reality if you slow down and you take pause you can see somebody makes a statement and then contradicts it in the very same sentence and most won't even catch it because our society is programmed it's we live in a programmed society where it's only the saints of Yahweh that are coming out of her my people and we are taking the technology and we're using it, but we are not letting it influence us. Hopefully you don't have Alexa in your house. Hopefully, you know, Siri is not speaking to you and you've got the 5G out of your house. Hopefully you've got cages on those smart meters. I mean, we have got to take precautions because the technology is luciferic in its inception. And it is using and being used ultimately to infiltrate. And there's a whole bunch of propaganda out there. And it's all coming from the synagogue of Satan. So we have got to be alert. We've got to be 
the disciples of Yahusha that are living our faith in reality. I pray that Yahweh would bless you all, and I pray that this teaching has just been a little bit of a blessing to you, because truly, the more we learn about the right administration of the Spirit when it comes to Torah, the better we're all going to be. Amen. Baruch Hashem, Yahuwah.